QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Sandra Walklate. Sandra is the Eleanor Rathbone Chair of Sociology at the University of Liverpool and an adjunct professor in the School of Justice at QUT. She is a pioneering academic in criminology with highly cited research spanning gendered violence, domestic abuse and coercive control, war and terrorism and victimology. It is difficult to truly impart in the space of a short introduction how influential Sandra has been in this field. As she explains, she is one of the earlier people to meaningfully explore the experiences and societal contexts of victims of crime, and it cannot be impressed too strongly how impactful her work has been in the field of victimology. Just be aware, Sandra and Jodie are having this conversation from different countries, and because of a computer program that will remain nameless, there are a few moments where the audio jumps or goes a little bit quiet. Without any further ado, Sandra Walklate. Welcome to How To Academia. I'm really excited to have you here. Who are you? Ah, my name's Sandra Walklate. Um, my formal titles are Eleanor Rathbone Chair of Sociology at the University of Liverpool, Conjoint Chair of Criminology at Monash University in Melbourne, and I'm also currently President of the British Society of Criminology. And I also hold an adjunct role at, at QUT. Yeah. That all sounds exceptionally impressive, and indeed you are an ex- exceptionally impressive human. What does it mean to be an adjunct? Actually, I found it a real, a real privilege. I was kind of really flattered when Kerry asked me a few years ago now, and I thought it was a really exciting opportunity to get to know how a different organisation operates, um, how the, the research environment works, but mostly to get to know a whole range of, of different colleagues in a different institution who, and I'm going back a while now because I became an adjunct, I think in 2015, who were like doing really, really interesting work. So I just thought it, it was a really generous opportunity to, to participate in what QUT were doing in the School of Law and Social Justice but also particularly the journal, because at the time, I think I was editor of the British Journal of Criminology as well. And so it was interesting to, to get engaged and learn about the journal that the school operates as well. So, yeah, I just thought it was a real privilege, actually. And That's... it's been really interesting ever, ever since the, the opportunities I've had to come and talk at events that you've run in the times that I've been in Australia have always been hugely beneficial and interesting. That is really lovely to hear. Tell me about becoming a victimologist. That's a, that's a good question. That's a good question. I kind of became a victimologist almost by accident. When I started, I, 
if this was a video, you, you know, the audience would be able to see that I have a shock of white hair. So I actually started in academia quite some time ago. In fact, I started my first post in January 1975 at Liverpool Polytechnic. And the big name criminologist on the interview panel, who's now deceased, but and I won't name him, made it quite clear at the interview panel that, that because I'd expressed some interest in what then we call crime and deviance, because that was the thing that excited a lot of people who went to university in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, that was one of the things I was interested in. He made it perfectly clear that there was only room for one criminologist in this new new department and that was him so don't get any ideas that I might you know participate in in work of that kind and so that that kind of set the tone for the first four or five years at which I was working in that institution though I, technically I was in, employed to teach social psychology but it was very much a symbolic interactionist version of social psychology so I kind of buried my head got on with preparing, teaching, finishing my research thesis, because then you can still get jobs without necessarily having your research degree in the bank. And, and did some little bits of research with different colleagues around. Notably, there was a social worker strike in 1979 in the UK, and we did some work about the, the impacts of social workers withdrawing their labour in and around Merseyside. But if you go back in criminological terms, in the UK, criminology undergraduate degrees didn't exist in the late 70s and early 90s. You know, people did study crime and deviance. It was part of sociology. The biggest unit for criminology was in the Home Office. You know, the whole team of, of Pat Mayhew, Mike Hoff and so on, they, they were the biggest team of criminologists, actually, in England and Wales. Perhaps with the exception of some people working at the Institute of Criminology, at Cambridge, but it was all postgraduate stuff. Mm. It wasn't undergraduate stuff. So that, that's one bit of context. Another bit of context is if you go back to the early 80s, we had the civil disturbances in the UK. We had the development of the Criminal Victimisation Survey, and we had the growth of left realism and, and their, their view of the need for local crime surveys. This is a long story, but it, it's kind of interesting because it's also about the changing nature of the discipline and over, over time. And as a part of the emergence of left realism, Merseyside Police Authority at, at the time thought that it would be useful, given the things that had happened on Merseyside in the early 80s, that, that we would have a Merseyside crime survey. And they sent that out for tender. And the chief constable at the time Basically, we, the team, a team of us at, the, at Liverpool Poly put in a bid for this tender, which actually included me, despite what my colleague on the appointments panel said. It was recognised that he couldn't do it on his own. So there was me and there was a geographer and there was another chap who was interested in citizenship and, and rights and so on. And we put, put in a bid for this. We didn't, we didn't secure... The funding for, for the crime survey, Richard Kinsey did at Edinburgh. And the story goes because the chief constable at the time said there was no way he was working with that team at the Polytechnic, you know, because it was all very status driven. Edinburgh was considered to be a much more prestigious institution than Liverpool Polytechnic. And of course, Richard Kinsey, which much more closely connected with the left realist agenda than, than, than we were. But out of all of that, a probation officer 
approached me directly and said, you were part of the team who put in a bid for the Merseyside Crime Service. I said, yeah, he said, are you interested in victims of crime? I said, well, I don't know a lot about victimization, but I could be, you know, because we're going to do a criminal victimization survey. He said, oh, come and talk to me. We, we are running a victim support scheme out of our probation office. And we'd like to know if what we're doing is helping people or not. That's oh, wow. how it started. And so I went from, from being a bidding for this mega, mega books with this big project down to spending my spare time going out in and around Liverpool, interviewing people about the kind of support that they'd received from this embryonic victim support scheme. And from there, it all developed. I got very actively involved in victim support in, in Merseyside, which was the growing voluntary organisation at that time, right through the 80s and the early 90s. And as a part of that process, became aware that there was this huge literature, well, not so much UK-based, but certainly American literature out there about something called victimology. And I think there was this, but there was basically me, Mike Maguire and Rob Morby mm. in the 1980s looking at the impact of crime on, on victims. So in the process of doing that work, I learned a lot. I got to know an awful lot of really, really interesting committed activists of, of different kinds. I got involved in watching this organisation grow and develop and evolve. And as I say, I was actively involved in doing work with them and for them. Never for funding, as, as it happened. It was all on a voluntary basis, but that, that, that's, that's neither here nor there. And by the, the late 80s, we'd begun to think at the Polytechnic about reorganising our degree programme delivery. And by that time, there was an emergent kind of voice around, let's, let's do something on criminology and criminal justice. Yeah. And the team of us then was, was included me and Joe Sim. I shared an office with Joe Sim for a long time. Joe's actually recently retired, but I've got really fond memories of working with Joe and a, a politics guy called uh, Peter Gill. And we put together uh, an undergraduate package that included the possibility for students to specialise in criminology and criminal justice. And I popped up one day and said, I think I could do a course on victimology. And they all kind of looked at me a bit weird. What? Look, there's all this literature and there's all, you know, there's, there's all this stuff. And I said, OK, you run with it. And I did. Uh, and it started from there, basically. I think I ran the first undergraduate victimology module in England and Wales around about 1989, 1990. And I bravely approached a publisher at the same time and said, I've got this idea for a book. And he again, looked at me very, very strangely and I suggested an outline to him. He said, OK, I'll take a risk. I'll run with that. And it kind of started from there. So. It was almost was like an accidental victimologist <laughs> in, in lots of ways, taking up an opportunity that was presented because of a certain coming together of events. And I guess that, that to answer your question, that's, that's where it started. And I still think it's kind of fascinating reflecting now on the way in which the concept of victimhood has evolved and changed and become much more of a central focus of policy discourses 
on what, what its current shape and form looks like in comparison with where I started. So, yeah. I want to come back and talk about that because I think it's that's one of the things that's really interesting. But I notice when you're telling that story that you talk about criminology and victimology as they're kind of the same thing. Do you think they're the same thing? That's a very, very good question. I mean, victimology has always tried to emulate criminology in, in its in its shape and form from its early days, you know, from the desire to, to create victim typologies, kind of emulating uh, Lombroso and his offender mm. typologies and so on. And, and I think I think there's there's been a kind of parallel story around some of the concepts that, that victimology uses. So in some respects, I don't think they're don't think they're, they're the same, but they are certainly parallel. I think contemporarily, and I, you know that's really that it, that's really difficult because it does depend which part of the world you're talking from. You know, it really does because I think even still, you know, in England and Wales, the term victimology still has a bit of a bad press around it, insofar as you know the feminist critique of the term victim. And, and so on. I've worked with people in the United States where that doesn't exist. Mm. You know, the idea that the idea that you can talk about a feminist victimology doesn't seem to rankle with US scholars in the same way that it would it, it would rankle me personally. Because I, I prefer feminist informed rather than uh, which is kind of perhaps a bit of a nuance too far. But the field as it's in itself is how criminology, how I remember criminology being. Again, in the 1970s, I suppose, it's a field that's occupied by so many competing voices. You've got practitioners, you've got advocates, you've got academics. You know, if you go to the World Society of Victimology Conference, it, is, it's, it has a very different feel to it than the American Society of Criminology Conference, for example, or the British Society of Criminology Conference. Certainly, I can speak about the British Society Conference that's kind of lost that activist voice in lots of ways, but not in victimology, that still seems to be this hugely mixed space. So I think it is, it is parallel, but not the same as a discipline. But in some respects, I think we're kind of splitting hairs conceptually because conceptually victims are complex, you know, so that the, the idea of complex victimhood is something that I would argue needs to be centered a, a bit more in that, you know, vic victims aren't like goodies over here and offenders are baddies over there. You know, these are people, mm. you know, had different challenging experiences in, in their lives. And sometimes they, they've resulted in, in them carrying the label victim and sometimes it means they carried the label offender. It makes it very difficult. You know, think, think about post-conflict situations, you know. That, that's really where the, the, the concept of complex victimhood has been derived from because in conflict situations, you know, the, the winners and the losers is like a bit, a bit odd because people have been subjected to war, genocide or whatever, and people take revenge. You know, you've only got to look at, at some of the behaviours around some of the, the, the big genocide events that we know about, you know, there's, so it, it gets, it's, it, it's muddled. I tend want to think more and more about the biography and the way in which 
these labels actually only carry meaning at very, very particular points in a person's life. And that over their lifetime, they don't have as much meaning, I don't think. So if you now I'm going back to my social psychology origins, actually, because I was always impressed with the work of a kind of philosophical social psychologist called Ron Harray, who used to write about, if I can remember it properly, the key things that motivated people on a routine daily basis was the maintenance of respect and the avoidance of contempt. Those mm. were the two things that, that, that really informed how people saw themselves and related to other people. And I think those two concepts are really important, whether you're a victim or offender. It's about being a human being. And sometimes the concept victim doesn't mean that much because borrowing from Harry, I think as human beings, we know when we've been victimized, we know what that feels like because something just happened to us that we didn't ask for, we had no control over. But sometimes things happen because of how we are with others. They're a product of interaction mm -hmm. in which actually it's not easy to point a finger about who did what to whom because it's an outcome of a process. So I think I've wandered off a bit there, Jodie. So I think I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's interesting, isn't it? You know, victim studies, if you like, and victimology carries such a wealth of weight mm. and meaning and thinking. And it's grown so much since I first ran a course on <laughs> victimology in the late 1980s. But at the same time, what we know about the complexity of the relationship between these terms, victim, offender, and the criminal justice response to them has also grown. But what we see is a mismatch between what policymakers want to hold on to where the action might be and actually what goes on in, in people's real lives. One of the things that's said about victimology is that it is a discipline that it's rooted in advocacy. As a academic, do you see yourself as an advocate? Um, gosh, you do ask good questions. <laughs> I, I hear that a lot. <laughs> I have never actually seen myself as an, as an advocate, no. But I suspect I am really in, in lots of ways. I'm, a, I'm an advocate for increasingly for making sure that the work that we do actually resonates with people's real lives, if you can use that. I've, been, I've said that a few times, but I kind of get irritated when I see work that, that you can see is, is just for the sake of it. Yeah. And it's just about embellishing someone's career, about making an additional intervention on behalf of a particular theory or empirical agenda that, that they've developed sometimes it connects with what goes on in the real world and sometimes it doesn't so I guess in that sense I, I am an advocate and I think that it's something I've come to later in my career as opposed to earlier I suspect the more you feel comfortable with the work that you're doing and the kinds of interventions you're trying to make and the kinds of thinking that that you've developed the more confident you feel about intervening in a kind of advocacy way 
So I'm going to give you an example now that will probably get, get the Twitterati really, really cross. I love um, it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I do feel very strongly about the whole debates around coercive control, for example, that I know have fueled some quite unpleasant conversations in Australia in particular. And I think I think a role as an academic is to actually try and step aside from the emotion and actually point to they're being emotionally infused about stepping aside from the emotion, which is kind of a, a bit of a contradiction. But actually say, look, yeah, yeah, we all know coercive control exists. But the point is, what do you do about it? Mm-hmm. And I don't think criminalisation, I really don't think criminalisation is what you do about it. And I've you know, just, just published a book with a UK colleague on coercive control where we spend at least two of the chapters talking about criminalisation. So if anybody out there listening wants to unpack that a bit further, go, go read the book. But so, yeah, in that sense, I would say that I've become increasingly an advocate, but an advocate of in terms of, you know, let, let's let's just step back and let's see what makes sense here, because some voices seem to neglect that there are unintended consequences to criminalisation. And that's what bothers me. And and if those voices are being listened to, that bothers me even more. (laughs) Because there's a a whole, there's just unintended consequences to going down that route that I think will come back and bite people ultimately um, if they don't actually just step back a bit and consider. So yeah, in that sense, I have become increasingly an advocate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because when I look at your career and I look at your work and I think about books like Imagining the Victim of Crime, which has been so important in my own journey as a victimologist, and and even that sense of saying, "Hang on, we need to step back and think about and understand how we actually." build this picture of victimization and how we actually apply those labels i think we we lose some of the advocacy potential in that when we just think of it as academic but for me that that is empowering as an advocate to be able to yeah. step back and go just think about how we're thinking about this yeah yeah that's absolutely right and it's a very kind of very particular definition of advocacy, of course, but I think you're right. I think it is important because these kinds of initiatives that voices want to introduce, say about criminalisation, carry consequences for people, going back to my theme, raise expectations. And if you don't meet those expectations, that carries consequences too. You're in a spiral of producing discontent, <laughs> mm. you know, which then can fuel the advocacy movement to say, yeah, we need to do this now and we need to do that. You know, so it becomes kind of almost as a, an advocacy spiral, you know, a self-fulfilling one. Whereas if you just take time to consider from all angles to begin with, then you can avoid some of those consequences, I think. How in your career have you become comfortable with sitting in the messiness of all of this? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I have. I'm not sure I am. I'm not sure I have. To be honest, it is messy. It's very frustrating. And I guess 
I guess I suppose I would say to you that once I be, once I become comfortable, I'll probably stop. But <laughs> I've always feel as though no, no, there's, there's there's something else that needs to be sorted here. I really need to think about that. I mean, I do struggle more about finding a way through of writing and thinking that that can recognise the messiness because I think the messiness is important. It mm. is important to resist the desire for simple answers. You know to resist the one-size-fits-all kind of response. I, I, I don't think I am comfortable with this, and I think that's good. It really is. But sometimes I think these solutions that are so targeted and meant to be one-size-fits-all are trying to make people feel more comfortable or make the situation appear much less complex than it is, and that's fundamentally part of their failure. Yeah, that's right. I would agree with that entirely. And that doesn't mean to say there aren't things that could be done. It means it, it does mean to say that the things that could be done also look complicated. Yeah. So that if you want to actually effectively intervene on domestic abuse, which is why for me, over the last few years, being exposed to, in a very real sense, some of the initiatives and challenges that are going on in Australia, from, from which I've learned loads, absolutely loads. And you try and bring back to the, to the UK context in which, you know, we've just had a Domestic Abuse Act 2021. You know, this is like yet another moment at which the legislation is supposed to kind of deal with domestic abuse. And you go, more of the same? Hmm. where actually we still don't fund refugees, you know, to the same ex- to the extent, you know, in the early 80s, the refuge movement pointed out that you needed one refuge for every 10,000 per head population in, in England and Wales. We're nowhere near that. It's 2022, you know, and, and it's that, it, I suppose it's that kind of the way in which the move towards criminal justice, criminal law response, which actually some of the second wave feminists were never into. Mm-hmm. You know, they, that was just one bit of the puzzle. It was a whole thing. It was about social welfare. It was about education. It was about, you know, learning about, you know, it was a holistic thing. And it, it, there's very few places where there's been an effort to actually put that holistic vision and funded properly in place. I mean, I, I remember learning from a colleague who was chair of the Rape Crisis Federation in the early 2000s here in England and Wales. And they were told by Jack Straws, the Home Secretary at the time, that when the 2004 Domestic Violence Victims and Abuse, uh, I've probably said that legislation all the wrong way around, I can never get, get it in the right order. But when that legislation was passed, that... Um, we're no longer going to fund the Rape Crisis Federation because the legislation solved the problem. Because that piece of legislation also did some significant work around definitions of rape. And so that was it. That was only, that was the only, no, you know. So it's kind of, it is, it is messy. There are solutions. They just involve reprioritizing what we think is important in terms of, yes, the economy, you know, Domestic abuse costs economies mm. billions. You know, you can actually use the economic argument, the social values argument, the engagement of citizens. You know, you can use a whole range of different arguments that don't just focus on let's make another criminal offence. <laughs> it's amazing to me the 
I want to call it arrogance. Oh, we have these problems that have been going on for millennia, really, and we think that one piece of legislation is going to be the magic bullet in that. I was just wondering if if part of this is is to do with the way in which you know American liberalism has mm. penetrated, particularly the Anglo-speaking world, you know, so that you get that as a frame of reference of this is how you solve problems without actually recognizing the problems of American liberalism. Yeah, you know, I was always I've, I've, I have been taken by. Um, something that Wayne Morrison said about in the context of, of looking at criminology and war. And he said he observed that during the Cold War, that's when American liberal imperialism took over in the intellectual department. Wow. So, you know, I, and, and that kind of observation has stuck with me ever since I read it. I'm thinking, you know, you've got a point there about, particularly for criminologists, you know, and you see that, and this takes us back to, you know, the southern bit of, of being engaged at, at QUT. I mean, this takes us back to some, some really fundamental framing about how we think about things and about how we think we can solve problems. Yeah. Do you think Australian victimology is different to victimology in the rest of the world? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I could identify an Australian victimology, actually. Mm. I think there's there's lots of stuff to be learned from Indigenous voices in particular, but I wouldn't want to put that under the label of victimology because I think that would be unfortunate in, in lots of lots of ways. There's lots to be valued about thinking differently mm. about our relationship with each other and, and with the environment and how to do things differently. I think it's a very, very personal view is I think it's unfortunate that the whole concept of restorative justice has become so elastic globally, which does deny its roots, which I understand and I might be wrong, does come from Indigenous thinking about how to solve problems, community-based problems. So I think there's a lot of value in that. What isn't valuable is the way in which it's been distorted and politicised globally, perhaps. I mean, to frank, so, I, be frank, I would say bastardised. Yes, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was okay. My, my, perhaps my use of the term of elastic is probably <laughs> very, very similar. So, but I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't put that in, in the frame of, of victimology. I think that's, that's a fundamental that's a fundamental to me about ways of thinking and ways of knowing that don't just apply to studying victims. They apply to offenders. They apply, they apply to knowledge, mm. knowledge production process. And I think it would be unfortunate if those voices just continued growing in parallel, because I think there's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not connected enough to know the extent to which they can actually talk to each other but I think that different way of knowing and different way of thinking actually resonates so much with from where I come from where where you know second wave feminists were asking the same questions whose knowledge counts here mm. yeah I'm going to shift gear here a little bit what was it like being a 
young female academic in an emerging discipline? When I look back, I'm not sure I ever thought of myself in, in those terms. When I started my first job, I was the only woman in the department of 35 men for the first 13 years of my career. Jesus, that's a long time. That was that had its challenges. And, and, and one of the challenges I find in, interesting, I, I, just a little amusing anecdote, because I was a single parent when I started my, my first academic job. So I was very much focused on taking my daughter to school, going to work, getting back to pick her up from school. And, and, and that was like my routine. But very much knowing that the lads always went out on a Friday. Mm. You know? And that was where a lot of the departmental stuff was, was done. And you think, oh, that doesn't go on now. Let me tell you, it still does. <laughs> I am aware. I've got a wonderful anecdote of, of it's only about it's about 10 years ago now when I was head of department at, at, at Liverpool. And myself and my husband had decided we were going to go to a, a concert uh, in Liverpool. So we, we, we booked in a, into a hotel to stay over because I live a fair distance away from Liverpool. And I thought, well, we'll just go for a drink before the concert starts. And we went into a pub that's very well known in Liverpool, one of the landmark pubs that people to go visit. It's called the Philharmonic. And we went in and this sea of faces were all my male colleagues. And they went, oh, what's she doing here? <laughs> really, really funny. But, you know, that kind of stuff hasn't gone away. So I think some of those, some of those kinds of, behaviours around how you do business and, and, and so on um, still impact upon those people who can't can't or won't and or don't want to participate in doing work in that way so I don't think I really I really was kind of don't really thought of thought don't really think I thought of myself as being you know a kind of fairly singular voice in, a, in an emergent discipline and and in, in part that's I suppose I did ultimately leave Liverpool and took up a post at, at Salford for a short period of time and then moved from there to Keele. And Pat Carlin was head of department there and she was just amazing. Just an amazing kind of role model to have in terms of um, her commitment to her staff mm. and her expectations from her staff too. She was a tough tough leader in lots of ways you know you had to have a sick note if you didn't go to a departmental seminar you know because these were the things that mattered but by the same token she would actually get up really early and do all the admin work for the department so that everybody else could get on with wow their research and and their teaching so I had that kind of role model and so never felt unsupported from there on in and in fact in, even in my days at, at Liverpool Poly, when I was the only woman, um, wasn't that I wasn't supported, but I was supported for odd sorts of reasons. So that the head of department then put me put me up for promotion simply because I was willing to take on the tasks that some of the blokes wouldn't do. You know, so in 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 the post riots era, talking about 1983 84, uh, Merseyside Police wanted someone to go and go and talk to the officers about prejudice and discrimination mm. and and he said well 
you're it, I can't trust anybody else to go and do this appropriately. So, you know, it was still sexist in lots of ways, but I did benefit a bit from that. Because again, it it was a really interesting, challenging, but again, when you work, as I have done, done lots of research with police forces and police officers, you know, sexism takes on a whole different sort of dynamic than you might find in academia. So yeah, I think I think more recently, uh, in terms of those sorts of, of challenges, I think part of the problem is, Jody, is that is that academia is such a lonely occupation anyway. Or, or certainly when I started my career, you know, the lone scholar model was the model. You know, it's not not I don't think that's such a maybe such a prevalent mm. or powerful driver now as it was uh, those years ago. So, you know, I think that that was, I didn't really think too much about the consequences of being, you know, that singular person because, you know, it was a singular kind of occupation in lots of ways. But I can see, and it's interesting, isn't it, that, that over, over that, time I, th- I think there's probably more female criminologists people more women in higher education who teach criminology now certainly in England and Wales and the, perhaps there are there are men if you looked at the social sciences across the board you'd find mm. that most of our students are female now not male and trying to not use words that are going to provoke a different kind of twitterati response because I know these terms are also contentious so yeah, I think some of the barriers I've found have been more to do with class. Mm. I don't quite fit because I come from that kind of background. Certainly in a Russell Group university, you find those things a bit more, can find those things a bit more pro- problematic. Certainly the most, my most recent experience of, of, of challenges on that kind of personal front have been more to do with age than they have to do with sex. I was going to so, ask yeah. that. Is there ageism yeah. in academia? I think so. Perhaps not. It's, it's more in mind. Mind you, I was like, I'm, I'm actually again going to use a concrete example. When this is before I moved to, a, I'm, I'm on a fractional appointment to Liverpool now and a fractional appointment at Monash. So this, is, this was just before I moved to a fractional appointment at Liverpool so we are going back six years now but there was they were struggling to find um, someone to do the head of departments role and I said okay I've done it once I can do it in fact I did it twice but the dean at the time said to me he actually used these words he said you're too old to have a vision for the department oh my god <laughs> and I thought right I'll show you <laughs> How is that a thing? I did. I did actually raise it with HR, but they they closed ranks. Mm. HR, the dean, they all closed ranks. Even though I made contemporaneous notes, it was a one-to-one conversation. I made notes at the time, and I've probably still got the email correspondence somewhere. But uh, I thought, right, you. And I suppose it's kind of a comfort to me that he's now retired and I'm not. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's interesting to me because I look at that and I think these figures such as yourself that have been so seminal in the development of 
are, are disciplined and are so experienced and rich in the skills that are necessary to do this job. And they're kind of put on a, I think, put on a pedestal and idealised and like I will fangirl over Sandra Walklate and Pat Carlin and these women whose work has been so important to me. It's interesting to hear you reflect on the notion that that's not necessarily experience that is always beneficial for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's absolutely the case. I think, you know, I was really, th- I, I was really thrilled to, to get the Eleanor Rathbone Chair at Liverpool University. And I still feel privileged to hold, hold that name chair. I think it's one of two named chairs in England and Wales. So, you know, I, I really take that seriously. And, and for many times, particularly when I'm speaking to an audience who perhaps knows nothing about Eleanor Rathbone, I always make a point of explaining who she was and what she stood for. And why, and why she was important. But by the same token, you know, you can do, at, at Liverpool I've experienced, and it's probably true across a whole range of research intensive universities, it's certainly my experience at Liverpool, that you can do as much as you want or the minimum and yeah, nobody right. will really notice the difference. Huh. And, and, and that was my first observation after being there for six months. And I still think it, it, it holds now. Um, it's, it's, it's somebody once once told me it was there's a phrase that they use in the in the world of mis- business. It's it's not quite exploiting the talent, but that, that's that's the you know. So I kind of keep doing my thing, <laughs> keep doing research, and I will keep doing that until, uh, as I said to you before, until the messiness stops intriguing me. Um, you not rest on your laurels why do you keep why do you not just go I could just have this job where I could do as little as I want to why do you keep going yeah that's 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 my that's my protestant ethic heritage I think (laughs) I think that that, that's that's my personal problem yeah I've been asked that question on more than one occasion it's just that I wouldn't feel comfortable with with doing that I suppose Look, all along, I felt very, very privileged to have the kind of job I've had. When I set out being the only person ever in my extended family to go to university, I was overawed by that process. And I always wanted to be an infant school teacher. I always thought that teaching that that two and a half to five year old was absolutely fascinating, you know, because seen it in, in your own children. They learn, they grow, they so much must be just delightful to be involved in an environment where a child, you know, you're watching a child grow and develop. But by the time I got to apply to teacher training college, they told me I was overqualified to be a teacher. And I, I, I didn't get a place because yeah, I was wow. overqualified. I think I could be okay as a teacher. I'll just have to kind of put my sights higher up. So you know, again, at the time, you didn't need a teaching qualification to apply for, for jobs in, in the higher education sector, which is how I ended up with the job at, at, at Liverpool, at the Polytechnic, as it was then. And, you know, I've always felt really, really privileged to have that kind of job um, to, okay, so, 
you've got classes to give and you have to prepare for classes, but actually the independence that you've got, the flexibility that you've got, the opportunities you've got to actually follow things that really interest you. I often, when some of my colleagues get kind of, you know, very down in the dumps about the demands that are being made on them. So, and I just go, well, you're not working in Tesco's, are you? You know, you're not, you're not, you don't have to sit at a cash register for four hours at a go. And mm. So I've always felt really privileged. And because I feel really, I've always felt that way. I've always felt that, you know, if you've got something to give, you give it. Mm. I love <laughs> um, that. Have there been times when you've wanted to give up? Yeah. Yes, there have, actually. I think when I when I stepped down from being head of department for the second time and I came, I, 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 was, I got study leave and I, I came back into the department and the new head of department gave me six first-year seminar groups as my teaching load. And I thought, OK, I can see what you're doing. Yeah, you know, it's important that the, the students see a wide range of staff but why, why six repeat seminar groups? Is, do you think that's the best use of me as a resource? You know, I'm paid all this money and you're giving me classes that you could give a postgrad student mm. to do. I felt a bit, a bit kind of, hmm, yeah, maybe there's a message here. But then towards the end of that year, um, I got this marvellous invitation from Kerry to come and speak to a conference in Brisbane. I then got an invitation to speak to the World Society of Victimology Conference, which was in Perth the same year. I also got an invitation to speak at the Asian Criminology Conference, which was the same year. So I kind of did this like world tour, Southern world tour. And I, it was just a, such both an eye-opening moment and a rejuvenating moment mm. that when the opportunity to work at Monash came up, I thought, I can't let this go. So I, I kind of negotiated the part-time at Liverpool and I've, I've enjoyed the time in between, probably the best of my entire career, actually. It's been wonderful. That's so great to hear that you get to your point in your career and you're still having these best of my career highlight moments. Yeah, it, it is, it's, it's just, even though we've had the challenges of COVID of the last two years, so I haven't actually been to Australia for the last two years, it hasn't changed doing stuff like this, feeling, feeling connected with people. I've been actually busier than ever mm. with research. And I've you know, met some wonderful people and been to some amazing places and, and, and been exposed intellectually to some really, really good work that I've learned a lot from. So it's been hugely valuable, yeah. I want to follow up for our students because some of them won't know, and indeed anyone outside of academia won't know. What does it mean to be a named chair? <laughs> well, it, it's. I'm not. I'm not. To be honest, I'm not. I'm not quite sure because it's different than an endowed chair. An endowed chair is one where you know a particular family or a particular organisation actually funds the post. Um, a named chair is really about recognition of the contribution of that individual to the wider context of British society. So Eleanor Rathbone was the first female MP in the Houses of Parliament who represented, she actually represented the universities. Now there, there's an anachronism for you. There was a time at which the universities had their own members mm -hmm. of Parliament. 
She was an active campaigner in Merseyside in particular for women and children. She secured, just before she died, she secured the payment of family allowance to the woman rather than the man. So hugely significant. She was also very active in assisting refugees escaping from the Spanish Civil War. Just a, a range. She was just an amazing, an amazing voice, particularly emanating from uh, the Rathbone family, which, which was an, a, a very wealthy family uh, on, the, on Merseyside. But I don't know if that really answers your question about what it what it means to be a named chair, but it makes it marks off as um, doesn't carry any kind of particular expectations with it. I mean, I don't have to do an annual lecture or anything like that, but it does kind of mark the chair out as something that people feel particularly privileged to hold. Mm. Okay. Because of the person after whom it's named. Yeah. I love that. What do you think the significant changes in higher education have been across your career? I can only talk about England and Wales in, in that, that regard. Certainly the significant changes were, were in, in my career were making polytechnics the same as universities, which was in the 1988 Education Reform Act. I personally still think that was a mistake. Because oh, really? Yeah, because the polytechnics were about delivering something different. Okay. And once they once they gave everyone the opportunity to, to become a university, they all kind of tried to be the same. Mm. And, and I think our higher education sector has lost something as a consequence. So to be specific, you know, Liverpool Polytechnic, when I when I joined, you know, the social science end uh, was was we, we, we actually did an external degree to begin with. We didn't even validate our own degrees. We, had, we did the London external degree uh, in social sciences. So that, that changed uh, pretty, pretty quickly. But, you know, part of our role was to, was to educate the bricklayers about sociology, or I used to teach architects environmental psychology. And in other words, it was a kind of educational institution that, that was, had the vocational bit much more strongly present in, it, in its mm. portfolio of activities. And for a while, those polytechnics that became universities lost that vocational bit. And they were all, all the institutions were then competing for the same research glory. Now, there's been some good things come out of that because some of the, what were, you see, we still talk about post-1992 institutions and pre-1990. So, you know, that, that kind of bifurcation still, still exists. But some of the newer universities are, are really pretty good in particular areas of expertise. So, so now we've got a system where there's pockets of expertise and it isn't just necessarily the Russell Group who are the big names in research, although that probably is still the case for uh, medics and dentists and, you know, where you actually need a lot of hardware to, to deliver uh, vets, mm. uh, those kinds of courses. But I think, I think there's, there's been something lost about losing that vocational, that connection with the world of work in a very real and concrete way. So we certainly have a lot more students. I mean, Tony Blair was big on that so we have a lot more students doing a lot more degrees that are a lot le less relevant to the workplace 
Mm. I think it, I think it, I'm not saying that going to university isn't a good thing for young people to do. It certainly is, but I think again, it's about managing expectations. They don't actually necessarily get graduate jobs. And, yeah. And, and, yeah. and now they don't get graduate jobs, and they they leave with a, a whole host of debt as well. So yeah. I'm not I'm not sure that's particularly healthy. And again, if I go back to where I started at Liverpool Poly, the other thing that polytechnics were good at then was getting students in with what we what were called then non-normal qualifications. In other words, they could write an essay or they could do an interview and we we take a chance with them. Mm. They didn't have to do the formal three A levels and have grades at X, Y, and Z or, or whatever. So the, the student body was more diverse, mm. um, ethnically diverse, and certainly in class terms was more diverse. Though having said that, when I worked at Manchester Metropolitan University from the late 90s to about 2006, most of our students, 40, about 44% of our students there were Asian doing the criminology degree programme. So, you know, that, that it, the pattern is, is, is quite varied. Yeah. Do you have a favourite theorist? Favourite theorist? And or um, theory? It's, it's funny, I've had a email interchange on exactly that this morning. I'm still, I'm still kind of quite like symbolic interactionism. You know, I'm still a bit into um, George Herbert Mead. Um, I still like Goffman. You know, these are my like early passions as it were. So I suppose, yeah, I would, I would come back to that, modified with some stuff around theories of the state and, and so on. But yeah, that would why be my knee-jerk response would be symbolic interactionism. Why do you think symbolic interactionism has lingered with you? Um, I think it's because of its focus on meaning and understanding and the way in which it, it gets us to think about, you know, what goes on here is a product of, of how people have understood and the shared meanings they develop for making sense of what goes on here. And, and I think that's why it works in terms of, of understanding processes between people. You know, people make choices, but not in circumstances of their own choosing, to paraphrase Paul mm. Marx. Um, and I think it's because it gives, it's a framework that does give people the capacity for, make, for making choices, albeit under constrained conditions of shared understandings. And when, and when people kind of behave a bit left field and it exposes what, oh, you weren't supposed to do that. Now, you know, what, what does that tell us about what's supposed to go on here? Um, I still think it's got uh, a lot of value, yeah. Best piece of career advice you ever received? Oh, that has to go. It's not, wasn't really career advice as such but when I started Salford University which was the first place I worked at post the Polytechnic Ian Taylor of Taylor Walton and Young was head of department there and and it was it was the early days of what people have come to take for granted now professional development reviews right so I had my first PDR meeting with him and Ian Taylor was a big character in, in lots of ways some people got on with him some people didn't so he was it could be prickly it could be prickly so I went into this PDR and he said to me he said um, 
Well, I can see you've, you've filled the form in, Sandra. I know, I know what you're doing and uh, I know what plans you've got for this term. He said, but tell me, where do you want to be in five years' time? And I was absolutely floored by the question. And I just looked at him. He said, you've got no idea, have you? I said, no. No, I never even thought in those terms. I can tell you what I'm doing in the next two weeks, you know, but five years, what's that question about? And he said, go away, think about it, come back and tell me next week. Yeah. So in some respects, it was a bit brutal, you know, but in other ways, it was like a real turning point. I mean, my God, he thinks I can go places. Yeah. He thinks I've got something. Wow. So what does that mean then? How do I, how do I answer this question? <laughs> That's amazing. That moment of being seen and having to yeah. then view yourself through a different lens. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't really career advice as such, but it was a one of those moments which you go, wow, okay. So this is, and maybe I even implicitly said, so this is the way the chaps do it, is it? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's just it had a very real, you know, edge to it for me. I hadn't quite thought about it in those yeah. terms before. Yeah. What are your top tips for students surviving university? Go to the library, read. And don't just read one book for your course. Read several books. Uh, get your essays in on time. Put your, put your effort into, into your assessments and enjoy yourself. Basically, you, you'll never get another opportunity to have such uh, freedom of intellectual engagement and freedom of social relationships with other people. So enjoy it too. That is beautiful. Sandra Walker, thank you for having such a stellar career that continues to have such an amazing impact on so many of us. I really have loved and appreciated this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you, Jodie, for asking me. It's been great fun. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.